We have, we have heard, heard the stories our ancestors recited of your deeds in their days long past, how you saved them. We, we will praise you for as long as we live. 90% of uh, the more than one million refugees in Lebanon are in deepening debt, and they're not able to pull themselves out of this debt. You are our victory, pushing push back the enemy. Police have several men in custody in connection with shootings that wounded five people. At the sound of your name, the enemy is crushed. There are three gunmen who are being sought who shot 31 people, killing at least 14 in an assault on a state. You are our king, our God. We do not trust in our weapons. We do not trust in our strength to win us victory. But you rescue us from our enemies. Four days now since 129 people were killed in a massacre in this city. You stay true and remain faithful to us forever. You have justice for those who are pressed down by the world. You provide food for those who are hungry. For that we shout your name all day long. Let all that is within us praise the Lord. We will praise your name forever. We will praise you as long as we live. Wait, God, where have you gone? Why are you still ignoring our suffering and trouble? We need your help now, not later. Has your loyal love finally worn down? How long will you make me wait for you to answer me? Why are you hiding from us? If you respond to my pleas with silence, I will lose all hope. Lord, I am calling out to you. Have your promises reached an end? Why have you forgotten Why me? must I live my life so depressed? See my troubles and my misery and forgive all my Please sins. Please don't turn your ear from Rise me. up and help us. Why must I live my life so Please depressed, crying endlessly, while my enemies hurry. have the upper hand? Everyone keeps asking me, where's your God turn now? Your eyes Restore to me. us for the sake of your boundless love. I am exhausted love. from crying for help. You my throat is parched. I am lonely my eyes and parched. Why are you still us. ignoring me? Everyone keeps asking me, where's your God now? Please how long will you make me wait for you to answer me? Please hurry, Lord. We need your help now, not later. For the past few weeks, we've been um, asking you to fill out prayer requests on these cards. And like was mentioned earlier, um, we, we take these seriously. We look them over and pray for them. It's amazing the things that are in here. Um, today we're going to talk about waiting. I just want to pause for one second and ask you a question. What, what are you waiting for? If you could snap your finger and your situation, you could change a situation in your life, what, what would it be? What are you waiting for? In here, there's, there's children that are being waited for. Couples who want to grow a family. And they're asking the question, what, where are you, Lord? How long? There's relationships that are broken, seemingly beyond repair, and people are asking, God, you said that you could heal our relationships. Why, why not this one? People who are praying for loved ones to come to Christ, people who are praying for tumors to be healed. God, you said that healing is available to us. Why? Why don't we see it? What are you waiting for? Oftentimes in our world, it feels like we, we live in a not yet world. A place where we, we wish that things were a certain way, but not yet. A place where we have faith and we can believe about what promises are coming in the future, but, but we don't have them now. How do you keep hope alive when you have promises 
but just not yet. So many of these prayers boil down to this sort of one thing, like, God, where are you? Where are you? I can't find you. This is the, uh, uh, in the church calendar, this is the season of Advent. And Advent just simply translated just means coming or, or he's coming. Whenever I hear that phrase, he's coming, I can't help but rewind to um, the days of my childhood. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, and my dad was uh, an attorney and then turned a judge, and now he's a retired judge that's not retired. He just, he keeps working. Um, now, I have the kind of job where I can, like, I can wear an old sweater and jeans and loafers to work. Uh, like, every day is casual Friday for me at work. My dad didn't, that wasn't the case. He had to wear, like, a, a three-piece suit to work. It was, like, crisp, starched shirts, solid suits, power tie, you know? And there's only one kind of shoes that go with a power tie and a three-piece suit. That's a good solid pair of like 1975 wingtips. You know the ones I'm talking about? Each one of them, I think, weighed about 10 pounds. And the reason I knew this is because my ear was finely attuned to the sound of these wingtips. Um, now, let me explain to you a little bit about the reason why. Now, some of you might have guessed, if you know anything about me, um, as a young boy, I oftentimes got into what is called hot water around my house. I have what my mom called a hard head. So uh, most days, I got into trouble for something. And my mom grew up in a military family, so she's a strong woman. She took care of 99% of the problems on the spot, right? But every once in a while, I would get myself into a pickle, into a position where mom wasn't going to take care of this one. She would say the words that I always dreaded to hear that you may have heard at some point. Just wait till your dad gets home. Now, I grew up in Southern California. We don't need basements because it never rains and there are no, no tornadoes. So my house was like divided into two parts. There was like the living part. I'm going to say it's over here where like our living room and the den where the TV was. It was back in the days when you had to get up to change the channel on the TV. Okay. So that was like our hanging out area. And then our bedrooms were over here, four bedrooms and a bathroom. And the only thing that connected these two areas from each other was this hallway it was a ceramic tile hallway. Uh, I know because like my parents dragged me around to all the home improvement stores. I remember how long it took them to choose the stupid tile. And then my dad laid it down himself in this hallway. So on one of these occasions where uh, mom said, wait till your dad gets home, I'm in the back bedroom and I'm waiting for my dad to get home. You know how the Bible says like, uh, towards the end of history when things get wrapped up, there's a place where there's like, if you didn't do a good job, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You heard this? That was my room when I was waiting for dad to come home. So my dad would pull in and I could see the headlights. They would pull around the garage. I would hear the front door open. I could hear a brief conference between mother and father, mom reporting the, the deeds of their terrible son. Um, and then my dad would start to walk up the hallway those 10-pound hard wingtip loafers, like step, step, step to my room until it was reckoning day, right? But there was one day a year, at least one day a year, where instead of the sound of those wingtips coming up the hallway producing fear in me, they produced joy in me. And the reason why is because once a year, it was my birthday, um, and on my birthday, I'm also old enough, not only did I grow up in a house where you had to get up to change the channel on the TV, I also grew up in the pre-Chuck E. Cheese era, 
The terrible place called Chuck E. Cheese did not exist when I was a kid. Have no fear. The precursor to Chuck E. Cheese did. It was called PJ's Pizzazz, and it was down by the mall in our neighborhood. Same kind of idea, except instead of the terrible, stupid games that are at Chuck E. Cheese, we had real games like Space Invaders, Asteroid. Anyone with me? Dig Dug, Caterpillar, Pac-Man, like the good stuff, right? And my dad would get a cup full of coins and give it to us, and we would eat pizza, and I would open presents. It was like almost the best day of the year. And on that day, when I heard the wingtips coming up the hallway, I couldn't wait. You see, there's something about waiting that's important, is like your experience of waiting depends on what you're waiting for. Now, I'm not very good at waiting. Um, in, in my DNA, when the cards were dealt up in heaven and mine, waiting was not a strong suit that I was given. Um, and so there's a couple Bible characters that I can really relate to. Um, see, there is a way to wait well. There are characters in the story of the Bible that wait well. And there are some characters in the Bible that wait poorly. Let's take a look at one of these stories. Um, actually, it's, it's in Abraham, or it's in Genesis. It's the story of Abraham, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. God gives them a promise that a couple who long to have children and have waited and waited and waited, God promises them that they will, right? The incredible thing about this promise is it comes when Abraham is 70 years old. At the age of 70, God promises that they're going to have a child. And they wait. And they wait one year, and then they wait two years. Anyone here ever waited to have a child, tried and worked, and month after month after month, you said, is, is it now? Not yet. Now? Not yet. One year, two year, turns into four, turns into eight, turns into ten. Ten years later. You know, when you're 70, ten years is a long time, right? That's a long time to wait for a promise. So after 10 years, Sarah, who I can relate to, decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands. There's a plan A, which is like God's going to give us a promised child. And then she decides to come up with a plan B, a do-it-yourself plan. She has a, a servant girl named Hagar. And she comes up with a plan. Abraham is going to sleep with, uh, with Hagar and they'll have a child. And so that's what happens. It's a plan B, and I just just tell you right up front, plan Bs have terrible consequences. And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar and has a child, Ishmael, and as you can guess, there's problems in the family to the point where Sarah sends Hagar and Ishmael, this infant, out into the wilderness. Funny thing, though, is Hagar in the Old Testament is the first person to give God a name She calls God the God who sees. Because in her suffering and in her being cast away, she knows that this God isn't turning his eye away from this. He sees it. And this plan B goes terribly. Ishmael and the descendants of Ishmael would be at odds with the descendants of Isaac for generation after generation after generation. Plan Bs have terrible consequences. Abraham and Sarah didn't wait well. There's redemption in the story, and Isaac comes, and God's story moves forward. Now, there is a story in the Bible about someone who does wait well, and actually it's a Christmas story. It's a story of Simeon, and it's found in the book of Luke, chapter 2. Let's take a look at it. So, 
Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, you can't be a Jewish person and hear Luke write about this and not, and not uh, have a little buzzer go off in your head when you hear that phrase, consolation of Israel, because Luke is quoting from one of the favorite prophets, Isaiah, uh, when he uses words, and in fact, we've been singing them week after week, comfort, comfort my people. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so he went to the temple, asking, like, is this the day? Not yet. Is this the day? Not yet. That may seem like something small, but did you know that in your Bible, even though there's not very much space between the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, do you know that that one page that separates those two books from each other covers 500 years? 500 years of not yet. Old Testament finishes with a promise that someone's going to come and someone's going to bring comfort to a group of people that have been enslaved, trapped in sin, and feel like their God is far away, asking the question, God, where are you? Will your promises ever come true? Just think about that for a second. Now imagine if I promised you something, promised you something really important. And I, I gave you that promise, and then you got old and died. You told your kids about it. Your kids didn't get to see the promise. Their kids, your grandkids didn't get to see it. Your great-grandkids and their grandkids. Generation after generation, 500 years is a long time to wait for a promise. It's longer than I can wait. I can't wait at the self-serve checkout at Target. I have a waiting problem. I could not make it 500 years. Simeon sees this baby, and after 500 years of not yet, he says a really, really important word. Let's go back to it. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For Simeon, after 500 years, the not yet has turned into now. Now is the time. He can be dismissed. I want you to know it's an interesting fact. Like nothing about the situation has changed. The nation of Israel is still under Roman occupation. There is still poverty. Orphans are still without families. Widows are still broken. There's still injustice all throughout the land. But for Simeon, something has changed. And the thing that has changed is just one baby. There's one life. That within the mess of that life, the mess of that people, just one person had to show up. And that person had come. That person had come. And that little baby a little later would teach an important lesson. He would tell a story about two people that were building something. He would tell a story about one person who built a house and another person who built a house. So both of them are doing the same thing, except Jesus isn't talking about building houses because Jesus always talked about building a life because that's what we're doing, you know? Like decision by decision, day after day, relationship upon relationship, we're all building a life. No one's not building. The question is, what are we building on? Jesus says the wise person builds their house on the rock and the foolish one builds their house on the sand. You know why? Because rock is really hard to build on. Have you ever tried to dig a foundation onto rock or attach something to a stone? It's hard going, right? You ever built on sand? 
Sand is so easy that kids can do it with little dumb plastic shovels and buckets at the beach. You can build an amazing castle, right? Looks beautiful. It happened in an hour, except one wave, and it's all what? It's gone. I know a little something about building on sand. Um, some of you know, uh, in my childhood, I had a, I had a rough uh, beginning. Uh, the first five years were a little, a little challenging for me. And it became pretty obvious to me early on in life that God wanted to take the, the difficult start that I had, some of the things that happened in my life, and even though God said that I didn't cause those to happen, I'm strong enough and smart enough to use those things to my glory. I'm going to take those things and I'm going to use those things in your life to bring me glory. Um, and so like, at, a, at a pretty early age, I had an idea that like, working in the ministry was something that I was going to be called to. But I have to go on a detour real quick. A couple of weeks ago, um, we asked you guys to answer a question when you were talking to each other. We asked you what the longest road trip that you ever took was. Remember that question? Some of you shared that. I was back at the sound booth. Me and my friend Steve watched it talk to each other. I told him the longest road trip I had ever taken was on a Greyhound bus from Los Angeles, California to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Do you know how long it takes on a Greyhound bus to get from L.A. to Minneapolis? Three days. Three days. Like three days in the grave. That's what that was like. <laughs> now, the reason I was on the Greyhound bus, you might ask yourself, who chooses to travel by Greyhound from Los Angeles to Minneapolis? And I'll tell you the truth, only people that have to. That's all of us that were on the bus. We didn't have a choice. Um, and the reason I had to was because just the day before I got on that bus, I had one of the most humiliating days of my life. I, I met my father at a 7-Eleven, and I, I borrowed just enough money for a bus ticket because the day before that, I had called him and told him that I had basically almost ruined my life, and I had n nowhere to go. Now, the reason why I had to call him to ask for enough money for a bus ticket so I can get on a Greyhound is because just a week before that, I had finished up um, 90 days in military prison. I don't wait well. It was the longest 90 days of my life. But the reason I spent 90 days there is because I decided I didn't want plan A for my life. I decided that I was going to try plan B. And plan B has terrible consequences. Um, plan B for me was so deeply entangled in drugs that I almost died. Um, I met my nemesis in a, in a drug that's so embarrassing to use. It's called crystal methamphetamines, and it almost destroyed my life. That was plan B for me. That led to 90 days in military prison. That led to the most humiliating conversation I ever had with my dad. That put me on a Greyhound bus up to Minneapolis. And there's only one reason why I was headed to Minneapolis... It's because I came to the conclusion that I couldn't do it on my own and that I had to find God. I didn't know where he was. I had lost him. I had lost him, and the last place I remember having him was in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the college that I went to. On that bus ride, on the way back to Minneapolis, for the first time I did 
what every person should do if you're waiting for something and you don't know what else to do, you feel stuck, or if you find yourself on plan B, there's always only one place to start, and that place is just be honest. I told God I had made a mess of my life, and if he could do anything with it, I would, I would do it. You know, there's a, a book in the Bible uh, called the Psalms, um, filled with like beautiful and amazing language. Many of those things turned into worship songs, like songs of soaring praise about incredible things. Did you know half of the book of Psalms, though, are stories of lament? You're not the first person to ask the question, God, how long? God, where are you? What am I going to do? How long will my enemies triumph over me? What to do when you can't do anything else? The first thing is to be honest. God can handle it. God can handle it. I was on that bus headed to Minneapolis because I was trying to get back to the last place I remember where I had met God where God had been with me. Because you know what happens to us? Is we forget. We remember our struggle, but we forget our hope. There's a story about this uh, in the Old Testament. Um, Speaking of having to go after something that was really good, uh, Joshua had a really tough job because he had to come after one of the most influential people in the Old Testament. Can you imagine taking over the reins from Moses? That's a tall order, right? The Red Sea was in his resume, and you got to figure out what you're going to do in your leadership. Joshua had to take the people. Moses had led them up to the point of the promised land. It was Joshua's boldness and courage that was going to help them cross over and to turn the not yet of the desert into the now of the promised land. And he did it. He did it. In one place, he and the nation of Israel was up against the river. It was the Jordan River, which normally isn't hard to cross. It's pretty small, but in flood stage, uh, not only is it a lot wider, but the current is a lot stronger, and the nation of Israel was kind of stuck. What are we going to do? How are we going to cross this river? God gave him some instructions about what to do. He told them to take the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic of the fact that God was with them. Do we see that anywhere in the Christmas story? God with us. You take that covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, to put it at the front of the procession, and the priests were going to be the first one to step into the water. How would you like that job? Funny thing is, the water didn't stop flowing until they stepped into it. They stepped into it, the water stopped flowing, and they crossed over. And God gave them a commandment. He told them to take some stones and build an altar And he said, the purpose of the altar is because you're going to forget and you need to remember. He said, every time you and your children pass by this pile of rocks, you should retell them that story. You should tell it to them again and they should see this spot because this exact spot is a place where your God met you and met you in your time of need. Remembering produces hope. Don't forget the moments that God has met you. Can you remember the last time that God met you? Um, This Christmas, um, Christmas is a challenging time for lots of us because um, 
We get together and have traditions and memories, and because death is still a part of our lives, people are missing from our celebrations, right? My, um, my mother-in-law, uh, who passed of cancer uh, a few years back, she'll be missing this Christmas. And one of the things about, um, Argy was her name, one of the things about Argy, now I have a, um, I, I like to keep my house fairly organized and clean. I don't like messes. I'm a bit of a controlling person that way, so I like things tidy. Um, but nothing like my mother-in-law. She loved the place clean, right? So whenever RG would come over to our house for Christmas, the tradition was the day before, uh, my wife would line us all up, me and the kids, and everyone would get assignments of work to do, right? Because from sun up to sundown, it was preparation day, right? The toilet never looked so clean as on this day. Um, because when someone important is coming over to your house, you, you get it ready, right? Advent means, uh, Advent means he's coming. Uh, and actually, another person who had a hard job in, in the Bible was a guy named John the Baptist. You remember this guy? This guy had a really hard job because after the 500 years of silence and be, when it was time for the king to come, it was John's job to let everybody know that they better start getting ready for this to happen. Uh, in fact, Luke captures it, and he talks about, um, he gives us a picture of this story and what it was that John was saying and how people responded to it. Let's take a look at it in Luke chapter 3. Out in the wilderness, John received a message from God. Happens a lot in the wilderness, you know. If you feel like you're in the wilderness, maybe there's a message from God there for you. John brought this message this divine message to all those who came to the Jordan River. To what river? The Jordan River. Was there a pile of rocks at the Jordan River? Probably. He preached that people should be ritually cleansed through baptism as an expression of changed lives for the forgiveness of sins. And he quoted from this very meaningful part of the Old Testament, one of the favorite prophets, Isaiah, in fact, he quotes the very same chapter that Simeon did. The part that starts with comfort my people moves to this part that he quoted. It's like a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley should get filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way is smooth and all people will see God's salvation. Super poetic language, right? Prepare a way. Take the low spots and lift them up. It sounds beautiful and sweeping. Songs have been written about it. But you know what it really is? It's like a construction guide. Uh, in in, in uh, New Testament times, if, if a traveling dignitary, like a king, was going to come visit you in a remote village, he would send word ahead of him. So that when he got there, uh, or in preparation for getting there, you could get things ready. So it was pretty traditional that what would happen is like a town, if, if a dignitary was going to come, they would take a look at their road and they'd get busy working on it. Let's take the bumpy spots and fill them in. Let's take the high spots and bring them down. Anything that's crooked, let's straighten it out. It's a road-building plan. Because when someone important is coming, a person of honor, you should build a great road. You shouldn't make it hard for them to get to you. Um, now, John has a hard job because he's going to deliver this message to a group of people who he senses, um, probably because he's a prophet, prophets do this, he senses there's going to be some resistance to this. 
Now, in our day, when you sense resistance, what you get trained to do is like kind of compromise and work with. You try to find where's the common ground and let's work around conflict. Uh, John the Baptist did not take that approach. Uh, He took an opposite approach, which was calling them a brood of snakes. I was going to start this message with that, and then I decided against it, okay? You bunch of venomous snakes, who told you that you could escape God's coming wrath? Don't just talk of turning to God. Bear the authentic fruit of a changed life. Don't take pride in your religious heritage. Say, we have Abraham for our father. And then I can just imagine John the Baptist looking at the pile of rocks that Joshua, their earlier ancestor, had piled up. And he says, listen, God could turn these rocks into children of Abraham. And they respond. John, tell us, what, what, what should we do? And I love it. John doesn't shy away. He doesn't give them general statements about like nebulous things. He gets real specific. And each one of the things that he tells them to do isn't something complicated. He's basically saying, look, look if a king is coming over to your place, right? Um, if RG was coming over to our house, we would make sure to like clean up things that we didn't want her to see, right? If things were broken, we're like, well, we should probably fix that before she gets here, right? If the king is coming, not the king of any country, the king of the universe, if that king is coming, shouldn't we throw a few things away? Is there some stuff that we should clean up? Some things that we should get straight. What the king says, or what, what John the Baptist is saying, it's like we should get on the same page. Not about things nebulous, but about things real specific. He said, look, if you got two coats, if you got lots of food, you should share a simple message. Jesus loves compassion. If you want to prepare for Jesus, be compassionate and generous. That's the kind of king he is. So prepare yourself. Get ready. Um, actually, I got a, a, an email this week. Uh, it's from Patrick. He's one of our children's pastors here. Here's what he said. Hey, everyone, I'm excited to share big news. 34 families from the refuge, our care ministry, Woodland Hills, and the daycare, and 19 teenagers from the lift, they're all receiving gifts through the generosity of families here at Heroes Gate through sojourners and journey groups and other people from the church. This is nearly 300 gifts. Another wonderful praise, he says, that 98% of the gifts came in on time. (laughs) He said, this has never happened before. Not only did you guys provide more gifts than ever before, you did it on time. We'll have all the gifts to these families by December 23rd, probably even sooner. Thank you for your generosity, right? Good job. Okay. One more commendation and then a challenge, okay? Um, We set a goal to raise $30,000 for things that we think that Jesus cares about. $10,000 for Syrian refugees. I think a good way to prepare for the king is to help take care of that problem. Um, uh, Community development work in Haiti um, and an orphanage in Mexico. Three things that we think that like, hey, the kind of king that we serve would like it if we straighten some of these things out as best as we could. And I have some good news for you. We've already reached the goal of $30,000, okay? So good job. Um, uh, and, 
and we could also do more. So any other gifts that come in, what we're going to do is just split them evenly between the three. Like what if, what if we gave over and above, you know? One thing to remind us of, our, uh, our December operating budget is pretty short, uh, so you could help with that too. That's a little bit of a challenge. Um, I just have one more thing to say, and then we're going to wrap up. Advent means he's coming. I mentioned that one page between Malachi and Matthew is 500 years of like waiting, of like not yet, waiting for not yet to turn into now. But you know, Jesus didn't simply come once. He made another promise. He made a promise that the kingdom was available to us here and now, that God would meet us here, but he also promised that he was going to come and, and tidy things up. Promised that he was going to come again. Advent is not just a time for us to remember that coming. It's a time for us to remember that in hope. He said he would come, and he did. And he said he would come again, and he will. We as his people can and should be without doubt in him about that. Writer of Hebrews put it this way. Here's what he said. In the first covenant, every day, every officiating priest stands at his post serving, offering over and over again those same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But after he stepped up, man, it's motivating. Have we ever seen someone step up the way Jesus did? After he stepped up to offer his single sacrifice for sins for all time, then he sat down in the position of honor at the right hand of God. And since then, he has been what? You see, you're not the only one that's waiting for not yet to turn into now. You're not the only one that's anticipating that. Jesus is waiting. And what's he waiting for? Like later today, after these two sermons, I'm totally going to sit on my couch and watch a football game. And I don't know about you, but when I sit down, I don't just want a spot to sit down. I want a spot to kick my feet up, right? Jesus is the same as we are. He wants to sit down and he wants a spot to kick his feet up. Do you want to know what he's going to put his feet on? What's going to be his footstool? He's been waiting for the day when he rests his feet on his enemies' backs. Now, around here, one of the things that we say regularly, there is no human being that's the enemy of God. So those are not people that are being talked about there. You know what I can't wait for? I can't wait to see Jesus kick his feet up on racism. I can't wait for racism to be done. You know, I, I can't wait for war to be over. Can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on poverty. That like not, not another child because of the border that they live in will have to go hungry. I can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on that one, you know. My own plan B, it's not just back there, you know. My own temptation to take things into my own hands and God has a plan A and I choose a plan B. I can't wait for Jesus to kick his feet up on all of our plan Bs. There won't be a plan B anymore. I can't wait for that. We are not the only ones that are waiting. Jesus is coming. I'm going to ask the team to come up. They're going to lead us. And in, uh, in one more time, we're going to sing this song, Comfort My People. We've talked about the, the chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 40, has shown up three different times in this sermon. That's where the words of these songs are from. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.
And I'm going to ask you to take out that rock that we gave you on the way in. You thought it was to throw at me if you didn't like the sermon. It's not the case, friends. Not the case. Rocks have been a few places in this sermon. Jesus challenged us to build our house on one of these, not the sand. Let me ask you, are you, are you in the middle of a plan B? And Jesus would just say, hey, you can build your house on a rock. You can start building your house on the rock at any time. You can. We talked about the rocks that get piled together in an altar, a place to remember. Don't forget the places that God has met you. If you're in a time of waiting and you feel like, God, where are you? I don't even know where you are. Don't forget the places that God has met you. Remember that God has been faithful. Um, and I'll bet you when it came to straightening out a path and building a good road for the king, the king of honor to come, I'll bet you some big rocks had to get out of the way. Are there some big rocks that need to get out of the way for you this Advent so that you could make a really great road for an incredible king to come to you? I hope that as you keep this this week, you'll keep those things in mind. Let's sing this song uh, as we get ready to close our service, and then I'll just come up and say a word of blessing before we dismiss for the day. So Isaiah 40, that talks about comforting my people and says, prepare the way, like, let's make these pathways straight. This is how Isaiah 40 finishes. Why do you say and complain that my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired nor weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not be faint. May you who hope in the Lord renew your strength this Christmas season. Blessings to you as you go. Have a great week.